Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. There's always been a curtain between our private and public lives, between the spaces where we live and work. But keeping up that divide has meant performing an exhausting and unrealistic feat of mental and physical gymnastics, also that we can present a strong and polished routine to the outside world, while keeping the messy, unpredictable elements of life, family illness, trauma, child-rearing, housework, all of that out of view. And the people doing the somersaults and the backbends to make all of this happen are mostly women. Women who have kids, women who care for their elderly parents, women who look after someone other than just themselves. I'm a mom of a toddler. My parents, they're older, they live down the street. I was a stay-at-home mom, but also working a full-time job. There are just certain things that are assumed that I will take care of. Cleaning up, the laundry, the scheduling, the groceries, it fills up space in your mind if you're constantly making sure that nothing falls through the cracks, especially when you have a career that's pretty demanding. These were the voices of just a few women who shared pieces of their lives with us, but there are millions more like them. And until the pandemic, all of that hard work, the blood, the sweat, and the tears of their invisible labor was mostly kept out of the spotlight. But under the glare of a ring light over Zoom, the COVID-19 pandemic made it impossible for that labor to stay hidden. Thanks for brushing my again. Apologies. So No, please don't apologize. I'm sorry you're having this day today. So No, but it's like, it, you know, an hour and a half late. I had a doctor's appointment scheduled for my little girl at 11.30. We were supposed to talk to you at 1.30. In a real, you know, in any kind of normal world, do you think that's enough time? Yeah. No. But then this is what we do as working moms. And it's like now I'm 15 minutes late for you. So apologies. No, don't apologize. And if you needed to totally reschedule, I would have been happy to do it. That very understanding woman is Reshma Sajani, the founder of Girls Who Code, an organization devoted to closing the gender technology gap. She's also a lawyer and a mum of two boys, so she could relate to the acrobatic routine of motherhood that I was trying to keep up. But I mean, this speaks to this like exact, I had major anxiety about like, I'm going to keep you waiting and I'm in a privileged position. I'm in a flexible position where I, in a sense, have this very flexible job situation where there is understanding kind of built in. How many working mums in America have a similar situation? Very few. Most don't. I mean, I've talked to moms who had to leave work to get a laptop for their child because they needed it for, you know, Zoom school and they got fired. Nearly 3 million women have been driven out of the workforce in the US during the pandemic. And the share of childcare responsibilities has doubled for women compared to men during that same time. But COVID didn't create this division, this additional unpaid labour, as Reshma points out. Unpaid labour is all the domestic labour that women do in our day-to-day lives. So that includes the, at home, it includes the laundry and doing the dishes and buying the groceries and, you know, taking your kid to school and signing up, all the stuff 
that makes the family work. And for single moms, (laughs) they're even taking more of the burden. The pandemic amplified all of the broken support systems that women have had to contend with across households, workplaces and government policies. It also forced us to look closely at the exhausting performance that we've long ignored and finally reckon with it. When I was doing the laundry and doing the dishes and figuring out, doing all the cognitive labor, in my mind, I thought, well, my husband just doesn't know. But then in COVID, they saw us do everything. They saw 3 million of us have to leave the workforce. They saw us go from, you know, 10% of moms having mental health issues to 70, 80%. A year and a half later, nothing has changed. Our employers are saying, come back to normal. And the gender ratio of the domestic labor at home has not shifted. What you're talking about as well, it's value, right? How can mothers value themselves if the society in which they live doesn't put value on who they are and what they do? I think it starts by saying, what is happening to you is not okay. It was not okay that somebody did not ask you whether hybrid schooling works for you. It's not okay that your employer is demanding you to show up at work full-time when 50% of childcare centers are shut down. It's not okay for you to be doing the vast majority of the cognitive labor in your house without support from your partner. Because it's part of the invisible work that we do as mothers. Exactly. I think that in the United States, we have dealt with this as a very individual problem. This is a private issue between you and your partner. It's almost been our shame. If my husband's not doing enough, I didn't train him well. It's my fault. And that has been the problem because it's not my fault, nor is it his fault. It's the culture that we have that creates very gendered expectations of what men do and what women do and how we operate. Who gets to work and who doesn't get to work? I'm Caroline Modoresi Tirani. You're listening to American Metamorphosis, a podcast partnership between Atlantic Rethink, the branded content studio at The Atlantic, and Boston Consulting Group, a strategic partner to government and business leaders. This season, we're talking about how COVID-19 has created a moment for us to think critically about the systems that we've built and decide if they're serving us, all of us, well. And for the nation's women, in particular working mums and caregivers like me, this moment has been a 21-month-long battle cry. Because the reality is that COVID, for all of its many ills, has forced us to have a reckoning with the structures that we live within, the systems that were designed and are largely benefited by men. Because a world where women are equal participants in the workforce, yet bear the overwhelming burden of domestic responsibilities and caretaking, is a world that's nowhere near equal. A lot of what I was doing was kind of coupling my job and my kids. I felt a lot of the strain in trying to juggle that because I was the automatic parent he ran to in most cases. Not all, but most. We've talked about how it's really not fair that I don't get compensated for that. This is the way our system, unfortunately, is set up. And before we revert back to the old ways of doing things, we've still got time during this moment of upheaval to radically rethink what those systems could look like to get us closer to parity, to reimagine our future with women at the centre of building it. 
COVID-19, when we started, 51% of the labor force was female. The majority of workers were women. Today, our labor market participation is back where it was in 1989. So there are more men in the workforce today than women. Why? Women left or were pushed out because they were the ones who had to do the caretaking. And that's why this fact that what's happened in Congress this past week has just been devastating, you know, and a punch to the gut. That punch in the gut that Reshma is talking about is the Biden administration's Build Back Better Act, a $1.75 trillion piece of legislation that stalled repeatedly. When negotiations first started, paid leave was one of the first items up on the chopping block. Were you surprised? I wasn't surprised, but I'm incredibly disappointed. If we weren't going to get paid leave in the middle of a pandemic where 3 million women have been forced out of the workforce, when you're hearing from your constituents over and over and over again, and even in that moment, you can't get it done? Not even 12 weeks, four weeks. Give me two. Just do something. And again, what's what's also wild to me is that it is wildly popular, more popular than the child tax credit and affordable childcare. But you cut it. Fed up with the inaction from government, Reshma somehow found time in between running her company and homeschooling her two boys to come up with a new policy effort to try and fix some of these issues. She calls it the Marshall Plan for Mums. Yeah, I mean, I came up with it in my bedroom, angry, you know, talking to the PTA moms and be like, what do you need? Right. And it was kind of very consistent and clear. Like its post-World War II namesake, Reshma's Marshall Plan is a huge stimulus. But unlike the Truman Plan, the Marshall Plan for mums is specifically designed to plug the gaping holes in the safety net that has exacerbated inequities between men and women for generations. Reshma's Marshall Plan would provide basic income payments to mothers, create affordable childcare programs, mandate more parent-friendly support in the workplace, retrain mums who have lost their jobs, and create better leave policies, among other things. Mom said, one, I need cash. I need money in my pocket, whether it's to buy shoes for my kids, to, you know, pay the rent. You know, I need cash. And we all know if you give money to moms, they will use it well, right? Secondly, mom said, well, I need paid leave. I need to be able, if I need to take a day off or to go get a laptop for my kid, or if I just had a baby, or if I want to ca- I need to care for an elderly, I should be able to do that. And we are the one of the only societies that doesn't offer, you know, paid leave. Affordable childcare. Childcare is too expensive. So many Americans live in, you know, childcare deserts. It doesn't make sense. There's no way we can expect women to participate in the labor market if we don't make childcare affordable. Why is the United States so bad at not just recognizing the position that women are in, but also at offering solutions to try and make things easier? to make this better for women in this country? Because we proclaim socialism. The amount of money that we spent bailing out Delta was the exact same amount of money that we needed to bail out the childcare industry. We didn't blink when it was an airplane, but childcare, oh my God, right? That's your problem. It's not the government's problem. And so we just have this wrong culturally. So Reshma's Marshall Plan for Mums is a blueprint for government to finally put concrete value on the unpaid work that mums have been doing for so long in plain sight and that we've ignored. 
I think structurally, government kind of knows what it's supposed to do. I think the tension has been that any support given to mothers is seen as welfare, right? And is seen as a handout because the cultural expectation is that mothers are martyrs and everything we do and give should be as a sacrifice and out of love. And we don't get nice things. Look, even for me, when I started building Marshall Plan for Moms, people have asked me so many times, why don't you just change the name? Why moms? You know, there, there, there's this real like disdain <laughs> for mothers or for that identity. And, and so that is part of the problem. The inherent misogyny. I mean, is that just like latent misogyny is the issue? I think it's misogyny. I don't even think it's just men. You know, I think it's ourselves. For me, before this pandemic, there would be young women who would, you know, when I'd be speaking at panels, would say, well, well Mr. Johnny, you know, how do you balance being a mom and running Girls Who Code? And I would almost like wave them off because I thought it was a trivial question. And it wasn't until sitting there in my pandemic, recognizing that like, wow, nobody cares about us. And that I am in this perpetual cycle where I'm trying to think I'm getting to equality, but I never am. Having added mom to my signature was very humbling. I'm not as capable as I thought I was at juggling lots of different things. I'm tired um, of the prevailing and sexist narrative that women are simply better at multitasking. Meeting, 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 meeting. Okay, quick eat. Okay, oh my gosh, I have a child. Okay, what is she doing? Okay, I have to let's go do a read aloud. Let's do an activity in her bedroom. Oh my gosh, we have to potty train. I didn't ask to be good at breastfeeding while making a sandwich. I didn't learn to shampoo and condition and dry off in four minutes for sport. We can't keep this pace. We don't want to keep this pace. It's not healthy to keep this pace. We knew that there was going to be a care crisis. We knew that women would be forced to step out of the workforce. We knew that schools would be closed. And yet it all happened as though it was a shock to everybody. It wasn't a shock to Soraya Shamali a feminist scholar and co-director of the Representation Project at the Women's Media Centre. When the pandemic hit, Soraya knew exactly where to look. So my response to the early news of the pandemic was to immerse myself in older pandemics. <laughs> Any pandemic that happened between 1000 and 1920, I was there for. It's very evident from pandemics of the past and epidemics in the 20th century, um, that there's a pattern to what happens. It's massively disruptive in ways that we can't predict, but it's also disruptive in ways that we can predict. And one of the ways that it is quite reliably disruptive is in setting women back sometimes generations because of this imbalance in the provision of care work and lack of value for it. So if we look at the 1919 pandemic, where we look at outbreaks of Ebola or SARS, we see the same pattern. That pattern is women being relied on to provide care for society, no matter the cost. Just take Ebola, for example. That outbreak was more deadly for women, largely because women were in contact with more people. And the more you care for others at a time when there's a highly contagious virus, the more likely you are to succumb to that virus. And it wasn't just that more women were dying. 
More women's lives were disrupted because they stopped working to provide that care, period. And taking on this gendered role has been the norm for women around the world for centuries, even in so-called progressive countries like the United States. It's interesting, right, because we're a capitalist society. And so in theory, and this is certainly the case in current political discussion, we're trying to value them economically. We have the greatest value when we are not being productive in the ways traditionally considered economically valuable. And so, in fact, our invisible labor, our domestic labor, our emotional labor, our care labor has value when it's not counted, right? When it's not recognized. And that's the core of our huge crisis today and has been for 50 years. Some studies have estimated that if caregiving work was included in measurements of GDP, it would make up anywhere from 30 to 50%. That uncounted work is what holds the system together, but there's no safety net for people providing care. And according to Soraya, we had an opportunity to course correct for some of this systemic imbalance years ago, but it just didn't happen. There was broad bipartisan support for the Comprehensive Child Development Act that would have, it, it was passed overwhelmingly by both the left and the right, but Nixon vetoed it. That veto killed what would have created a national network of federally funded childcare centres available for every family who wanted it. And it was a pretty progressive piece of legislation for the 70s. But it was being proposed at a time steeped in Cold War moralism, where the spectre of big government loomed large. It set the ground on the basis of a lot of fear-mongering. So if we did something like this, if we actually provided childcare, the nuclear family would be destroyed. I think Pat Buchanan called it the Sovietization of the American child. But Nixon's veto of the bill didn't stop the steady flow of women entering the workplace that had already begun years before. And this moralizing didn't stop the other major social and civil rights movements percolating in the country movements that were cultural powder kegs. In the 70s, sexual liberation became conflated, unfortunately, ultimately, with women's liberation. And we also saw the fight for civil rights and the fight for gay rights and all happening at the same time, right? And I just think that there was such a shock to the system. We know this. We know that backlash then ensued. Um, and we've had decades of backlash. Backlash was the title of feminist and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Susan Faludi's book, a book that effectively chronicled the antagonistic way parts of America responded to women in the period trying to break out of their domestic roles and join the labor force. Susan Faludi wrote her book in 1992. When she reissued the book 15 years later, she reissued it with a new introduction in which she said, I thought we were at the peak of backlash when I wrote it in 1992, and I was very, very mistaken. And looking back now, 15 years after that, I think that we didn't really even start to fight. It's why we're still talking 100 years later about the most basic acknowledgement that we need to have a care infrastructure. But because policy didn't keep up with the cultural shifts happening, women were stuck in a quagmire, and a wholesale cultural change that could have happened across America just 
stalled. It's part of the reason that today women are still expected to be doing unpaid labour, expected to be the ones to cut their hours if a childcare emergency arises, expected to keep house during a pandemic, expected to continue the acrobatic routine. The standard for the ideal citizen and worker is essentially a straight, able-bodied white man who can be um, an eternally ideal worker. And we've structured everything around that. Citizenship, workplaces, education systems, and yet everything happening within those systems is a testament to the fact that it's an ideal that isn't working in the society. The fact is that we live in a society that denies our fundamental interdependence. It denies our fragility and our embodied realities. Most of our lives involve our need for care, either as infants or very elderly people, or during our lives when we experience illness or pregnancy, for example. And yet the standard for the way our society is organized is to deny all of that. Our GDP still doesn't acknowledge care work. The work that a woman usually, not always, but a work that a woman does to keep her family safe and fed and healthy and to take care of her parents and her children, um, it doesn't show up. It's not considered productive or valuable. And I think that until we change that, we're going to keep having these conversations. The cultural shift around women's value has to happen on all fronts, and it needs to be acknowledged from all sides, which means that it's not only up to government, but also private industry to be a vehicle for change. I think this is one of those times where you say, women are uniquely looking to overcome a deficit that they've experienced and had to manage for, for decades. But this is an opportunity for men as well. Gabby Novacek is a managing director and a partner at BCG. Her background is in the social sciences and how human beings interact to build community. And while women like Reshma Sajani have been focusing on how government can play a role in reorienting the value of women in society, Gabby believes that American businesses can play just as crucial a role. Just before COVID hit, Gabby was deep into analysing how workplaces can be more inclusive and attuned to women's needs. And then when the pandemic temporarily shut everything down, she, like so many women, took on the brunt of the care work in her own household. Earlier this year, I actually reduced my own work capacity. So I, I was part of the the COVID, <laughs> the COVID um, pullback from work. You know, I was part of that statistic. And, and you know, in my case, um, it was because I, I have a, a spouse who is a cancer patient. She's she's undergoing treatment for stage four colorectal cancer. And um, and I think, you know, going through that experience as a leader myself, um, I you know, has brought a profound sense of recognition and sensitivity for what my employees and the people who report to me experience every day that I probably wasn't as sensitive to in the past. And, and I think this collective cultural experience of it's not just that handful of women in the corner who are experiencing this, but it is all of us on mass having to say, gosh, this is hard. This is hard. To get to the root of how companies can address the needs and motivations of female employees, Gabby surveyed close to 10,000 women in the U.S. workforce. 
And it was fascinating because if you ask somebody directly, they will almost always say it is great compensation. It is great benefits. I've got good work-life balance. But when you go through this exercise, it is much, much more grounded in emotional needs that can be far more difficult to articulate. And so what is actually leading to those outcomes is, do I feel valued? Do I feel respected? Do I feel challenged? Et cetera, et cetera. And what those things could be are going to change and, and evolve over the course of your career. This sounds obvious, but it's not been something that companies have been sensitive to. Even companies that have heavily invested in diversity, equity and inclusion programs Gabby's survey found that private enterprise has focused its efforts on targeting the 10% of women who were on the executive track, while ignoring the other 90%. It also reinforced the universal truth that often gets overlooked with even the best-intended DEI programs. There is no one woman, or single experience of womanhood. I'm a woman, but I'm also a member of the LGBTQ community. I was an immigrant to the United States. I came into consulting with this very weird academic background that wasn't typical. And, you know, and I, I always looked and I said, you know, my, my own experiences of having these things that made me different were such an asset in terms of how I built my career and, and drove impact. And so wouldn't it be incredible if we could find a way to expand that experience and, and, and allow that to, to shape what others um, actually feel and, and accomplish every day when they come to work. How good are American workplaces at realizing when we're talking about increasing representation of women, there isn't just like a homogenous woman? Like if you were grading American workplaces on a scale of one to 10, like how good are we at doing this? I, I, I would put us towards the bottom of the scale. Um, you know, and I, I, we have not recognized it at all. And I think you articulated it beautifully when you said there is no one woman and that has two meanings. So there is not one woman from the standpoint of, I cannot assume that all women fit into a singular archetype who can all be supported and um, solved for in the same way through DEI programs. Because as we see, you know, that older executive assistant is going to have very different needs and the frontline worker is going to have very different needs and that that young hotshot fresh out of her MBA program. But then there is also this issue that there is no singular woman as an individual either. A problem with not seeing women as having manifold experiences has been that companies have been too narrow when it comes to their efforts to accommodate the care roles of their employees. We don't often think about somebody caring for their spouse, mm -hmm. as you are, or somebody caring for their parent, as I am. Like, there is this entire generation that sort of gets lost in the middle. Yeah. How good have companies been and how good has the public and private sector been acknowledging that sort of squeezed middle, that sandwich generation? I don't think it has. And I, I think in particular, you know, we have an aging baby boomer population in the United States. It's an aging baby boomer population that is going to age in many cases without economic security, without health security. Um, and exactly to your point, there is a group that is now on both sides having to be caretakers and, and figure out how to do that. And I do think it was one of the most promising signals coming out of COVID was that expansion and the opening of the aperture of what it means to be a caregiver. And I think the more that we we kind of push into that recognition, that understanding, I suspect business is going to be the front runner on this because 
we have had to see how to figure it out during COVID. And we will be the ones that are going to, like many social causes in the United States, we will be the ones that that actually are the early thinkers on, on expanding that thinking. Do you think that the pandemic and the Zoom ring lights sort of exposing all of our private lives in the background, the children in the background, the laundry, like all of these parts of the domestic that were so often hidden, like has the pandemic actually shone a light on that? As we're talking today, you can see into my house. You can see what's on my, the art that's on my walls behind me. You can see my family photos. I mean, we have been profoundly interwoven into each other's home lives in a way that has never existed before. What should the evolved DEI programs look like? How should they address this current moment? So I I think there's a couple of steps. So the first is we cannot do one size fits all anymore. And especially as we talk about women in the workforce, this is not a small population. this This is almost half of our workforce. And so you say, if I really want to move the needle, I need to de average that group and I need to segment them. And I need to actually recognize that I have subpopulations across the women in my workforce who have very different needs across them. And I need to start to think about what my intervention strategy is going to look like in a more nuanced way to get there. I think the second piece, and this is this is actually the harder part, is we are not going to solve this through the next great benefits package, the next great flexible work model, um, the next evolution of maternity leave. These things are all critical. Like we can't take our eye off of that. We still have significant inequity in terms of pay and the like. Have to keep working on that. Um, but when you actually start to get into these these much more emotive factors that are driving women's decision making. That really boils down to what I like to call the thousand touch points. It's the things that we experience every day when we come to work and we interact with others. And that means actually starting to reshape behaviors and cultures inside of organizations. A story I share of a colleague of mine at work. Yeah, you know, she is a, a young mom. She's got three kids. And for her, it's really, really important that every day, from 7 to 8 a.m., she's left alone because that is when she takes her kids to school and it's the time that they have together and they talk about the day ahead and it's very special family time. And yet on a consistent basis, people will schedule meetings within that time and they leave her with a terrible choice. And yet it happens persistently. And that's where you start to say, this is this. she doesn't need a special program. Like what she needs is for people to respect that, that this is something that's important. And every time you force her to ask, you're actually creating a negative environment for her and you demoralize her. And so as we think about these changes, we are, we are not talking about huge increases in investment and structural changes. We're, we're actually talking about just being good people to one another, recognizing the things that matter for each other, triggering these emotional responses in each other's brains that really says, I've set up an environment where my colleague can be happy. We would never be having this conversation about motherhood if the pandemic didn't happen. That's Reshma Sajani again. And like Gabby, she agrees that for all of the loss that this pandemic has wrought, there's something to be gained. Even though nothing much changed, it just shined a light on what already existed. So I think that we have got to, though, do something about it and be very clear about what we want. Um, And again, not retreat into our mom martyr 
people pleasing. I'm not going to ask for it. I'm going to sit in my corner and suffer and really demand change. Reshma knows that trying to solve issues of inequity isn't just about fixing the fragile foundations of support. It's about building up a better workplace, a better household, a better government, a more equal world for all women and especially the next generation. It's all interconnected. And so if you don't solve childcare, if you don't solve unpaid labor, you know, if government doesn't do that, if we don't fix culturally the messages, you know, that, you know, caretaking is not just for girls, it's all interconnected, which is why I've built this plan, you know, in Girls Who Code, because it's a two-generational cycle of poverty. And I saw this with my students, you know, during COVID. So many of my students had decided not to go to college or weren't logging out to school because they were taking care of a sibling, because their mother was an essential worker. So they gave up their education. They gave up their dreams and desires to caretake. And so it is this vicious cycle that we have. We've got to fix this cycle. Another critical piece of the puzzle is to ensure that men are part of the solution. It can't just be a woman's job to address these systemic issues. Men have also come home and men have spent time sharing in the caretaking. Men have seen, you know, how much has to go into what actually kind of is part of that caretaking role. And they've taken on that caretaking role together. And they too are also going to look and say, gosh, if we can rewrite the rules so that I also can find more happiness, motivation, satisfaction every day. I mean, what a wonderful thing. It's not just about our daughters, right? It's about our sons too. I took Sean everywhere. He only thinks that CEOs are women, that only leaders are women, you know, because that is what I have shown him. And even in our home, when my husband and I argue about who's doing the laundry and the dishes or who's doing bedtime and daytime, he sees it. And I'm very honest with him and saying, I want you to see us have this disagreement and me push your father to do more. And when and if you have a family, I want you to do just as much, you know what I mean, as your partner, maybe even more. And so he understands that this isn't like a gendered conversation. And we have to have that conversation with our kids. Solutions to these vast and interconnected problems can seem so weighty that they feel at times impossible. But what Reshma, Soraya and Gabby are describing are tangible actions that we can start to put in place right now. Support in policies that put moms first, um, that would be lovely. The, The gender wage gap was fixed. The parental leave was better. I mean, when there are more females at the top. Making sure that new moms are able to have support systems. Affordable, good child care. That would just be life-changing. A health insurance market that doesn't seem intent on penalizing pregnancy by failing to cover its most routine aspects. I'll focus on care, care for myself, not just care for others. It's not rocket science. It's government policy. It's private sector ingenuity. It's possible if the will to do it exists. And because of COVID, we've got a consensus-building moment right now. It has transcended gender. It has transcended family construct and type um, because we've, of course, seen LGBTQ families and others who've been pulled into the fold. And it has also expanded the definition of caretaking. So we now are much more aware of 
the employee who is taking care of an elderly parent or a spouse who might have a medical need. And that is collectively a community of caretakers that goes beyond sort of the, the singular definition that we would have historically focused upon. And I think that transversality has also had a profound impact on that recognition that this is something important and we need to solve for it and we need to recognize it. Fixing these kinds of complex issues that recognize the diverse needs of women requires investment from the top down and action from the bottom up. And the kind of cultural shift that's already starting to take flight. An acrobatic flip with multiple rotations before we stick the landing. And I think there is a there's a knock-on effect of that, which is that there is an expectation that we now have seen and experienced each other's humanity, and we can't put it aside when we come to work anymore. It is woven in. You've been listening to American Metamorphosis. A special thanks to the mums and their babies for lending their voices to our episode. Join us next week as we move from defining value for half of our society to measuring trust for all of it.